0: I'm rolling.
1: Okay. A lot of this has to do with declassifying some FBI files. You feel there's a lot of suppressed information that nobody is talking about.
2: Well, I know there's... I think a lot of these information has been put under seal in Washington, D.C. I guess what I'm asking, do you think the FBI wants you dead?
3: April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel. The time was 6 p.m. And as King was standing there, he noticed one of his favorite musicians standing in the parking lot below, Ben Branch, a saxophonist from Chicago. So King leaned over the railing and yelled down in a playful tone to Ben Branch to make sure that he plays the song, Oh Precious Lord, later that evening at their rally. Play it real pretty, he said. then bang, a shot rang out. Most everybody standing around thought it was a firecracker that went off, but when people who were standing nearby saw Dr. King's foot hanging over the ledge, it was now clear the firecracker was actually Dr. King being shot. And in less than two minutes, dozens of police and firemen were on the scene because there was a fire station conveniently located directly across the street. Trying to figure out what happened, many of the cops started yelling, where did the shot come from? Where did the shot come from? And in that moment, this photo was snapped where, as you can see, many of the people standing nearby were pointing towards the buildings across the street. And after some initial investigation, police quickly concluded that the shot must have come from the rooming house across the street, which was located above a restaurant called Jim's Grill, where several witnesses claimed that they saw a well-dressed white man running out of the building and driving off in a white Mustang. And this is also where police conveniently found a large bundle of random objects sitting in front of the storefront, which is right next door called Knipes Amusement. And they found this bundle only seven minutes after the shot was fired. Inside of this bundle were the following objects. Four bullets, a transistor radio, binoculars, a copy of that day's newspapers, some toiletries, and a Remington 760 Game Master rifle with a pump-action .30-06 caliber that had one empty shell casing inside, indicating it had only been shot one time. Within days, the police had traced fingerprints found on that rifle back to a man named James Earl Ray, a fugitive who had been on the run for the last year after escaping prison Missouri where he was serving a 20-year sentence for robbing a grocery store. And after a two-month long worldwide manhunt for the man who shot Dr. King, James Earl Ray was found at a London airport with a fake Canadian passport using the identity Ramon George Sneed, one of 17 different aliases that he was found to be using in order to evade police. What's interesting is all 17 of these aliases were actually real people who conveniently happened to look exactly like James Earl Ray. And on March 10th, in order to avoid the death penalty James o'ray pleaded legally guilty to the crime of killing dr King and as a result was then sentenced to 99 years in prison but what if I told you that despite pleading guilty James o'ray never actually admitted to killing dr King and what if I also told you that the evidence against James o'ray being the shooter was so weak that the King family themselves openly supported James o'ray and wanted to help him get a trot and unless you've researched this in depth yourself you've likely never even heard anything other than than the official narrative that the fbi came up with which is that james earl ray was some angry racist who escaped prison with the sole intent of killing dr king in order to collect some hypothetical bounty put out by the kkk now we're definitely going to cover the ins and outs of this mysterious case but for you to understand the full context we've got to first look at the series of events that happened leading up to and immediately after the shot was fired first let's look at the version of the story that got james earl ray convicted
0: we have no evidence that there was a widespread plot. The evidence at this time indicates that uh, it was the act of a single individual.
3: According to the state, the day Martin Luther King was shot, James Earl Ray rented a room from the boarding house located above Jim's grill. At approximately 6 p.m. the next day, he stood in the bathtub of the public bathroom in the hallway, stuck his rifle out the window, and fired the shot that killed King. Once firing the shot, Ray ran out of the bathroom into his room without ejecting the shell case, packed up all of his belongings and the rifle, wrapped it up in a bed sheet before running out of his room and down the hallway. This is when he was spotted by a man named Charlie Stevens, who later became became the state's lead witness against James Earl Ray. After running out onto the street, he then ditched the bundle in front of Knipe's amusement next to Jim's grill before getting into his white Mustang, which he used to flee the scene before any police arrived. So what's James Earl Ray's side of the story? According to Ray, after escaping from prison in 1967, he used his brother's name and social security number to land a part-time job waiting tables. And once he had enough money saved up, he bought a car and drove right up to Canada. Then while in Montreal, he was hanging out at a place called Neptune, bar and this is where a shady character approached him who went by the name of Raul. Remember the name Raul because he's very pivotal to the story.
2: When you met Raul,
1: you didn't know any other name for him. That's the name that he said was his. Yeah. And you met
3: him where? Canada. Now at this point, Ray's only goal was to get travel documents so he could flee the country because he was an escaped convict. So in his first meeting with Raul, he told him that he wanted a passport and Raul said he might be able to help with that. But he would need a few days to check on a few things so he wanted to meet Ray back here at the same place a few days later for an update. And the next time they met, Raul told Ray the good news was he could get him a fake Canadian passport. Unfortunately, it would take him some time, so he had some part time work if Ray was interested in getting a little bit of extra money in the meantime.
1: In exchange for Ray's agreeing to perform certain tasks, he was provided with money and he was promised that at some point he would be given a passport to get
3: out of the country. Ray, not really having too many other options, accepted the offer and this would start a working relationship where Ray would transport mysterious packages across the border from the U.S. to Mexico, or from Canada to the U.S., and vice versa. You never became
2: good
1: friends
3: then.
2: Well, he wasn't my buddy anyway. He was no buddy, just a financial arrangement.
1: This is the man
3: that you knew as Raul? Yes.
4: What Raul did from that point on was keep James on a string, so that he was available, as it turns out, for use any time that they wanted to use him, always with the promise of these travel documents.
3: Eventually, once Raul figured he could trust Ray, he gave him an extra $2,000 to go and buy himself a white Mustang. When he got that white Mustang, he wanted Ray to meet him in Birmingham, Alabama, where he was getting prepared for a big gun deal with a group of Cubans coming up. The scenario that he developed was one which involved
4: the purchase of a sample weapon that he, Raul, would show to these gun runners. So the
3: story went. So when Ray got to Alabama, Raul told him, I want you to go down to this gun store and buy a thirty caliber rifle. So that way he could use it as a sample for whatever gun deal he was going to do with these Cubans. And Ray did just that. He marched right into the store, talked to the gun clerk who was standing behind the counter and told him that he wanted a deer hunting rifle because he was quote, going hunting with his brother. And that's when the clerk recommended that Ray buy a 243 Winchester rifle with a scope. Ray happily purchased the gun under the fake name Harvey Lohmeyer. But when Ray went to go give him the gun, Raul immediately got mad because it was not a 30 caliber rifle like he'd originally asked for. So he demanded Ray go return the rifle and exchange it for the right gun, which is a 30 caliber Remington rifle. So Ray, following orders like he had been for months, went back to the store, talked to the exact same gun clerk and said, hey, I bought the quote wrong gun and I'd like to exchange it. He then exchanged that gun for the same rifle that would eventually be found in the bundle.
1: From the people who witnessed his purchase of the rifle in Birmingham, he was confused about what he wanted, didn't know what he wanted, bought the wrong
3: rifle. He didn't know the first thing about rifles. And now that Ray had the correct rifle in hand, he delivered it to Raul on April 3rd, 1968, the night before Martin Luther King was assassinated. And after taking the gun, Raul said that the deal with the Cubans was going to be going down the next day, so he wanted James Earl Ray to meet him at a place called Jim's Grill at around 3.30 p.m. the following day.
2: Well, how did you and Raul get into Memphis? Did you come up together? No, uh, we met at a motel or a New
3: Rebel, I think it was. And when he went to drive into Memphis, he actually got a flat tire, so he had to pull over, replace the flat tire with a spare tire almost running late. Once at Jim's Grill, Raul instructed Ray to go upstairs to the rooming house and rent an overnight room because they might be in town for a few days. That's when Ray rented a room from the owner of the rooming house, Betsy Brewer, and before he could get settled in, Raul told Ray, go clear out for a while. It might be a few hours, so why don't you go see a movie or something? So shortly before six, Ray left the room. According to Ray, when he left the rooming house, he didn't actually go to the movies, but rather drove to a nearby gas station to see if they could fix his flat tire. And when he did. Did. the gas station attendant told him that he was too busy, but if he wanted, he could come back in a few hours.
1: There's witnesses now that say that you were at that filling station. Is that your story? You were at
2: this gas station getting a tire change or repair?
3: Yes, I had a flat tire the night before that. So Ray, with the white Mustang, started to drive back towards the rooming house, and it was now shortly after 6 p.m.
2: And you were going back to pick up this man that you say is Raul? The way I've recollected, i seen some police cars and people down there, and I turned off the other way.
4: The state makes a great deal of the fact that James fled, but James was one must remember a fugitive. He was on the run and he was certainly not
3: going to hang around wherever he saw police. So he headed in the opposite direction and began to make his way out of Memphis. And it wasn't until he later turned on his radio as he was driving out of Memphis that he realized that Dr. King had been shot, but not only that, the police were looking for a white man who fit his description in a white Mustang. So in other words, Ray admitted to buying the gun, he admitted to being Memphis on the same day that King was shot, but he never admitted to actually firing the shot. In fact, according to him, he wasn't even anywhere near the crime when it took place. Which brings up the question, is there any legitimacy to these claims? Actually, yes. For starters, when it comes to incriminating evidence against Ray, other than the bundle, there was never any of James Earl Ray's DNA found at the crime scene. Not in the boarding house or even the bathroom that the shot was supposedly fired from. No strands of hair, no fingerprints, nothing. And the only person who ever claimed to have even seen Ray was Charlie Stevens, the state's lead witness in the case. But here's what you should know about Charlie Stevens. At the time, he was kind of known to the locals as the town drunk. And on the day that Dr. King was shot, two people independently saw Charlie Stevens and both corroborated the fact that he was so stupidly drunk that he could barely stand. One of these people was Lloyd Jowers, the owner of Jim's Grill, who actually kicked Stevens out of his restaurant that afternoon shortly before the shot was fired. I just got into work at four o'clock.
2: He was
1: too drunk for me to sell him beer, so I sold him two quarts of beer to go.
3: And the second person who saw Charlie Stevens was a cab driver named James McGraw, who was actually called to come pick up Charlie Stevens because he was so drunk from the rooming house above Jim's grill. Now, one of the interesting things that McGraw would later testify and claim that he saw was when he went up the stairs, he saw that the bathroom door was wide open and that there was nobody in there and this is around five minutes before the shot was fired and that's when McGraw got back in his cab and started driving away and basically as soon as he pulled away the shot was fired so if Charlie Stevens the guy who claims he saw James Earl Ray running out of the rooming house with a bundle shortly after the shot was fired was too drunk to have witnessed anything then how on earth did he become the state's leading witness in the case you're not going to believe this after dr King was killed the FBI put out a police sketch of what they thought James 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 Earl Ray looked like, along with a $100,000 bounty for anybody who could come forward and identify the man in the picture. So in order to claim the bounty, Charlie Stevens, the town drunk, came forward and was basically like, yeah, I saw him. He was running out of the rooming house with a bundle. Yet because the case never actually went to trial, he never got the chance to testify in a court under oath in front of a jury. What's crazier is years later, when Charlie Stevens was being interviewed by a TV reporter, the reporter pulled out an actual headshot of James Earl Ray And was like is this the man you saw i can't even make this stuff up roll the clip mr stevens
2: what do you think of that picture does that look like the man well excuse me
0: from the
1: glimpse that i got of his profile it doesn't he's too heavy his face is too full he has too much hair and his nose true wives.
3: so what about the bundle with the gun and raised fingerprints harold weisberg an assassinations investigator and author of the book frame up was one of the first people to cast doubts on the legitimacy of the bundle that's
2: ridiculous he's required to have gone to his room in the flop house and picked up the widest collection
0: of junk bobby pins bobby pins uh cans of beer that hadn't been opened. A guy has been a crime like that and he's fleeing for his life, you're gonna pick up a couple of cans of beer or a bobby pin?
3: The one thing that bundle served to do was to point a finger at Ray.
1: It strikes many people, myself included. That looks like somebody else gathered that evidence and planted it there.
3: Remember, it only took two minutes for police to arrive on the scene because they were all at the fire station that was right next door. And in the words of James O'Reilly's first lawyer, Arthur Haynes Jr. This fire
0: station was full of firemen, Memphis
3: police officers, FBI watching
0: the motel the second that Dr. King went down this fire station erupted like a beehive.
3: This means that if Ray did fire the shot from the bathroom window, he would have had to run to his room, pack up his belongings with the gun, wrap it all up in a bed sheet, not drop a single hair or leave a single fingerprint in the process and run outside before randomly deciding to drop the bundle that he wasted precious time packing up before taking off in his white Mustang. All in under two minutes before any of those police officers arrived on the scene. But then comes the biggest kicker of all, a man named Guy Knipe, who owned the store Knipe's Amusement where the bundle was literally found dropped in front of.
0: The only real witness was a man named Knipes, who owned a music shop underneath the rooming house. And he was going to testify that the package was thrown down five or 10 minutes before the shot was fired.
3: Which if true, would cast doubts on if the gun found in the bundle was even the murder weapon at all. Bringing up the question of the day, if the state's leading witness was not credible and the bundle was seen planted about 10 minutes before the shot was fired and James Earl Ray denied shooting Dr. King from day one, then why on earth would he plead guilty? It all comes down to the critical decision that James O'Reilly made on the night before he was set to go to trial to change lawyers at the last second. A decision that James O'Reilly would later say was the worst decision of his life. Here's how it went down. After being arrested in London, Ray wrote a letter to Arthur Haynes Sr. and Arthur Haynes Jr., a father and son law team based out of Birmingham, Alabama, asking them to represent him in a case where he was being accused of first degree murder. We received a letter, dear Mr. Haynes,
0: I'm here in jail. I've been accused of a murder. I don't know anything about it. Will you please come help me? Signed, Raymond George Sneed. In England, we couldn't talk to Ray without a police officer right there with us. So as far as we were concerned, he was Raymond George Sneed.
3: Upon meeting James Earl Ray for the first time, their impression of him was that he was extremely nondescript.
0: Ray is every man and no man. He was a remarkably colorless person. You could dress him in a tuxedo and send him to a debutante ball or dress him in ragged, sweat clothes and send him to a homeless camp and he would be equally in place at either place.
3: And something in their gut also felt that not only did James O'Reilly not fire the shot, but that he also probably didn't even know he was part of a bigger plot to kill Dr. King. So the Haineses agreed to take the case and they took it very seriously. Did you, when you took over the case, begin your own investigation? Did you interview witnesses? Oh,
0: absolutely. Good gracious. We had a complete trial file. I probably talked to every wino in Memphis. So we worked on that case from his arrest. Rest in June of 1968, solidly until the trial in the fall of 68. And you thought you had a pretty good chance going to trial? We were absolutely
3: confident. There was only one issue though, payment. You see, James clearly didn't have any money to pay them with and the Hayneses didn't have the means to take the case pro bono. So Arthur Haynes Jr. suggested that they work out a deal with an investigative reporter that he knew, William Bradford Huey, who was writing for Look Magazine at the time. Huey felt that Ray's side of the story could potentially make a good book one day. So in return for having exclusive rights to Ray's side of the story, Huey agreed to pay for Ray's defense as well as give him royalties for any future book sales. We
0: encouraged him to hire Huey, the author, because Huey had every credential being in Dr. King's camp and he was in the middle of a series of articles for Esquire.
3: Ray, who originally reached out to the Haineses in the first place, agreed to take the deal. And while preparing for the trial, there was only one thing that James Earl Ray and the Haineses happened to disagree agree upon, and that was if he should testify at his own trial. You see, James o'ray had this vision for being able to look the jury in the eye, tell him his side of the story, and prove that he was innocent and had nothing to do with this. But Arthur Haynes Sr. knew from his previous law experience that if Ray took the stand, the prosecutors would try to bury him by focusing so much on his prior criminal history. That's the only impression the jury would have of Ray. So they told Ray straight up they don't think it's a good idea for him to testify at his own trial.
0: Our view of it was that we wouldn't know whether Ray was going to need to testify until the end of the state's case. Obviously, if he had testified, that would have killed the value of Huey's connection
3: to him. And to complicate things even more was the presence of James O. Ray's brother, Jerry Ray.
0: Jerry Ray, he wanted to come to Birmingham and have us support him and let him be part of the defense. Truthfully, we didn't have time for that. We were trying to manage our practice and at the same time get that case ready for trial.
3: So in his efforts to get involved, one of the attorneys, that Jerry Ray paid a visit to was a hotshot lawyer from Texas named Percy Foreman. Here's what you should know about Percy Foreman. When it came to defending people who were accused of first-degree murder, there was no one better. In his 40-year career, he claimed to have represented over 1,000 accused murderers. Of those, only one was ever executed and only 66 ever spent a day in jail. So when he got that visit from Jerry, he decided to go pay James Earl Ray a visit himself. And ironically, this visit happened to take place on the weekend before Ray was set to go to trial with the Hayneses.
0: I had spent all Friday with Ray getting ready for the case. I have learned in retrospect that almost immediately upon my leaving the jail on Friday, his lawyer from Texas was allowed in, the one that ultimately spent the weekend in the cell with Ray, persuading him to change lawyers.
3: With his reputation behind him, Foreman confidently told Ray that this would be the easiest case he ever defended, and unlike the Hayneses, he himself was pretty wealthy, so he was willing to defend Ray for free, no need for any book Deals. The only thing that he asked for in return as a retainer was that Ray signed over the rights to the white Mustang and the .30-06 rifle that he purchased in Birmingham. And after spending the entire weekend being pitched by Percy Foreman, Ray decided that he liked the deal. So on the following Monday morning, when the Hanes showed up to prison, fully prepared to go to trial with James Earl Ray,
0: Back to the jail, we were handed a note, and said, thanks for all you've done, but I've decided to change lawyers, so we left.
3: So due to the fact that Ray changed lawyers at the last second, Judge Preston Battle allowed them to push out the trial day even further to give the new lawyer time to brush himself up on the details of the case. That's when, a week after taking on the case, Foreman had arranged to meet up with William Bradford Huey for lunch in Dallas. Huey outlined this meeting in his book, He Slew the Dreamer, saying, quote, Mr. Foreman liked my three-way contract. All he wanted was for Mr. Haynes to get out of the way so he could have what Mr. Haynes had. Shortly after that meeting, Foreman then agreed to meet up with the Hayneses, which you would expect because they did spend months trying to build up their own defense. The only thing is, Foreman decided this meeting was only worthy of squeezing into his schedule on a layover between flights. Here's what Arthur Haynes Jr. had to say about this meeting.
0: We had witness statements, outlines of arguments. I mean, we had a complete ready file. He came through Birmingham and we offered him that file. We offered to send Sit down with him, we offered to outline our defense with him, give him everything that we had. All he wanted to do, and all we did, was feed him steak and scotch whiskey and hear him ramble on about what a fabulous lawyer he was. Truth of the matter is, Percy Foreman was the biggest fraud and blowhard I ever encountered in over 50 years of practicing law. I saw absolutely no evidence ever of any willingness on his part to defend that case as it should have been
3: In fact, this meeting rubbed Arthur Haynes Sr. the wrong way so much that he personally wrote a letter to Judge Preston Battle saying, "...it is my distinct impression that Foreman is disinterested in making a genuine effort to obtain the benefit from the fruit of our labor. His brief visit from a layover between planes has been the only contact we've had with him." Now, here's where it gets crazy. Foreman's final chess move came when he visited James O'Reilly in prison and told him that everything was going according to plan except for one thing. They needed to hire a little bit of extra extra help in the form of a second attorney. And unfortunately, this was going to cost some money. So Ray, not really having a choice, signed an updated contract with Foreman to essentially give over every last asset he had so Foreman could keep funding the defense. Now that Ray had essentially no leverage at all, just 10 days later, Foreman came back to Ray, this time singing a completely different tune.
2: When Foreman came in the case, he was all for a trial. At
3: least he pretended. Eh? Foreman seemed certain that they had almost zero chance of winning this case and that James Earl Ray would be executed.
2: And one time he came in with, the paper one sign saying that, you know, we enter a guilty plea.
3: If you go to trial, they're gonna barbecue you, he said, referring to the electric chair, but Ray didn't care. He still claimed his innocence.
2: His next game was that if I didn't enter a guilty plea, they might put my brother Jerry Ray in prison as a co-conspirator.
3: But Ray, still claiming his innocence, again, insisted on going to trial. So that's when Foreman finally threw in the towel and said that he could not possibly defend Ray because he simply wasn't feeling up to the task due to his old age and declining health. So he made a deal with Ray, which was actually put in writing the night before he was to plead guilty or not guilty this is a letter from his counsel on the eve of trial march 9th,
4: 1959 yeah. And when was the guilty plea? Right, right, right.
0: around March
4: 10th.
3: Yeah. Since Foreman was no longer willing to represent Ray, he agreed to pay James O'Ray's Ray's brother $500 so they could take that money and then go hire another lawyer on the condition that, quote, the plea of guilty and sentence going through on March 10th, 1969 without any unseemly conduct on your part in court.
4: And this letter offers him $500. What conditions was he offered $500? He claims guilty to go in comparison the court. We understand that $500 was
1: to hire a new lawyer, the
3: right so, the next day, Ray pleaded guilty, Foreman paid the $500, and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: Are you pleading guilty to murder in the first degree in this case because you killed Dr. Martin Liv the King under such circumstances that it would make you legally guilty of murder in the first degree under the law as explained to you by your lawyer? Ray's answer was
0: barely audible on the recording system used by the court. What he said was, quote, yes, legally guilty.
3: Uh-huh. Now, here's where it gets fishy. Immediately after the guilty plea, Percy Foreman stood up and gave a public statement to the court. It is an honor to appear in this court. I've never expected or had any idea when I entered this case that I would be able to accomplish anything except perhaps save the defendant's life. All of us, all of you, were as well-informed as I was about the facts of this case. It took me a month to convince myself of that, which the Attorney General of the United States and J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI announced last July, there was no conspiracy.
1: I don't give a continental damn whether there was a conspiracy Forman, did you ever ask your client whether he was a part of a conspiracy, whether he'd been hired? No, I never asked him uh, that, but I asked him enough other questions to convince me that he was not. Did you ever feel that you could ever do more than save his life? Never at any time, and so told him from the day I came in.
3: Yup, Foreman, who had always been so confident this would be a slam dunk for Ray's defense, was now acting like he did James O'Reilly a favor by saving his life. And not to mention, the plea deal that James O'Reilly ended up getting was actually worse than the original plea deal he was offered when he was still working with the Hayneses.
0: Were you ever offered a plea bargain? Oh,
3: absolutely. We were offered a better deal that he took. So if Percy Foreman genuinely felt that the best he'd ever be able to do was avoid the death penalty, then why would he feel the need to insert himself into the case claiming it'd be the easiest one he? ever defended.
0: Did we ever wonder why and how Forbidden got in the case? Only every day from that day until the day my father
3: died. Either way, three days after the guilty plea, James O'Reilly wrote a letter to Judge Preston Battle asking if he could reverse the guilty plea and go to trial. He also mentioned in this letter that he was coerced into pleading guilty in the first place by his former lawyer who was no longer representing him. Now, typically in these types of situations, judges are known to be okay with going to trial in the interest of properly seeking justice. But unfortunately for Ray, Judge Battle would never even get the chance. Because just three weeks later, he was found slumped over his desk, dead from a sudden heart attack, ironically leaning over the papers to reopen Ray's case. So, Ray was taken off to prison, no trial.
1: Someone mentioned to me that Tennessee law says that when a new trial motion is filed and the trial judge dies, it's automatically a
2: new trial. Why, Why hasn't that happened? Well, that's supposed to be the law, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, Judge Battle, the trial judge, did die. Well, he has to die within a 30 day period, and he died. uh 28th day or something, and we had a motion for new trial, but the successor just denied it.
3: Now, one of the things I feel is worth mentioning is that of all the conspiracies I've ever looked into, this is single-handedly the only one that I felt like the more I looked into it, the less I actually knew. And that's because depending on what witness you ask, there always seemed to be two very different accounts of what happened on the day that Dr. King was shot. One of these witnesses, for instance, was a reporter from the New York Times who happened to be on the scene that day and later wrote, those who were looking directly at King when he was struck told one story. Those who happened to be looking in a different direction, as I was, told another story. The reporter's name is Earl Caldwell. And on April 4th, 1968, hoping to get an interview, he was staying in room 214 on the ground floor of the same motel that Dr. King was staying at. He, like several others, saw something that day that not only contradicts the official narrative of what happened, but also likely proves the shot didn't come from the boarding house above Jim's grill at all. Here's what happened. Moments before the shot, Caldwell was in his room with the front door wide open on the phone, trying to reach the New York Times office so he could get a story in before the deadline. That's when he heard the shot. At first, he thought it sounded like a bomb, so he quickly made his way to the front of the room and looked outside to see what was going on. And the first thing he saw was a man across the street in the bushes wearing coveralls who seemed to be staring directly at the Lorraine Motel. What I
2: saw, this man just very clearly rise out of these bushes. He was in sort of a crouched, stooping position directly across from the motel.
3: Just then, he saw Dr. King's driver, Solomon Jones, sitting in the car, banging his head against the steering wheel, crying, so he yelled, Jones, what happened? And Jones didn't respond. That's when Caldwell looked up and noticed that Dr. King's foot was dangling over the ledge. And in that moment, he knew Dr. King had been shot. So his reporter instincts immediately kicked in and he ran back to his room to try to grab a pen and paper. And by the time he grabbed the pen, there were already dozens of cops running up on the scene with their guns drawn. And at that moment, Caldwell said that he thought, oh crap, it's the cops. They're shooting at us. So he threw his hands up over his face, almost sure that he was about to be shot until one of the cops yelled at him, where did the shot come from where did the shot come from frozen in fear caldwell couldn't move or respond so the cop just kept running past him at this point caldwell was almost certain the man that he saw in the bushes was the shooter and also of course the man in the bushes was a white man but when he tried to tell the police what he had seen he was ignored and they told him to get out of the way from the day of the
1: assassination until this day no police no fbi agent has ever
2: come to me and said what did you see
3: Caldwell wasn't the only person who saw the potential shooter in the bushes Solomon Jones Dr King's driver also saw the same guy according to Jones he was looking directly at Dr King when the shot was fired and when he saw that blood was coming from the balcony he immediately started yelling out Dr King has been shot so shortly after this Jones got up out of the car and started running across the street to try to catch a glimpse of whoever may have fired the shot and when he got to this bushy area above the retaining wall he saw a man running away very quickly now from this position he couldn't tell if the guy was black or white but he could see that he was wearing a light colored hood or parka he also said the guy looked like he was just under 6 feet tall and it almost looked like he could have been an officer but jones wasn't sure he eventually lost sight of the man who was running away so he turned around and went back to the Lorraine Motel the next witness is where the plot really starts to thicken and it comes from reverend James Orange who's an executive member of the SCLC who was also in Memphis with Dr King that day and on the afternoon of the shooting reverend Orange along with his friend reverend James Bevel were being driven around by a man named Meryl McCullough, who they understood to be a member of the Invaders, which was a local community organizing group that was essentially helping Dr. King plan his marches in Memphis. So that afternoon with McCullough as the driver, they had actually arrived back to the Lorraine Motel to meet up with Dr. King at approximately 5.55 PM. At the moment that the shot was fired, Orange was down in the parking lot with Reverend James Bevel. Here's what Orange said happened. After the shot, we ducked down. And the first thing I saw was Dr. King leg dangling over the balcony. When I saw the leg, that's when I looked back and saw the smoke. It couldn't have been more than five to ten seconds. The smoke came up out of the brush area and on the opposite side of the street from the Lorraine Motel. I saw it rise up from the bushes over there. From that day to this time, I have never had any doubt that the fatal shot, the bullet which ended Dr. King's life, was fired by a sniper concealed in the brush area behind the derelict buildings. I also remember then turning my attention back to the balcony and seeing Meryl McCullough on the balcony kneeling over Dr. King looking at as though he was checking for life signs. Now, remember this picture I showed you earlier? The one of all the people pointing across the street? Well, this man right here who's leaning over Dr. King is Merrill McCullough, the first man to get to Dr. King after the shot was fired, which is kind of weird when you think about it because he was in the parking lot below, but within seconds had responded so quickly that he had run up the stairs and was already checking Dr. King for life signs before anybody else who was standing nearby could even process what happened. Years later, when the government did their own internal investigation into the assassination, files were released that confirmed McCullough was actually not a member of the invaders at all. In fact, he was just a cop for the Memphis Police Department who had gone undercover by infiltrating the invaders. And by the time this information was found out, McCullough had already been promoted to the CIA. Here's where it starts to get crazy. The very next day, in the middle of an active crime scene, a sanitation crew was brought in by the city that very morning to cut down all the trees and all the bushes behind Jim's grill. bushes that at least four witnesses saw the potential shooter hiding in and the same trees that likely would have removed any realistic line of sight from the bathroom where the shot was supposedly fired anyways
4: I questioned the guy who was the head of the public works department I said who ordered you to cut down the bush He said I was ordered immediately to get a team down there to work with the police first thing the next morning to just clean that whole place
3: up remember police had concluded within minutes that the shot came out of the boarding house simply because of the bundle they had found conveniently placed on the sidewalk that had the finger. tracing back to James Earl Ray. So if you've been paying attention, you're probably starting to see a running theme here. Earl Caldwell gets ignored by the police. Solomon Jones thinks the man he saw could have been a police officer, but he wasn't sure. And Reverend James Orange spent the entire day with a man who was later revealed to be an undercover cop and also just happened to be the first person to reach Dr. King after the shot was fired. Did he know it was coming or much worse? Could the police really have had anything to do with this? The answer to that question is actually much darker than you think. This is Philip Melanson, a former political science professor and author who specialized in assassinations. And when looking into the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, notice a few red flags with the movements of the police tactical units that were assigned to Dr. King on his final visit in Memphis. You see, usually the Memphis Police Department would have six tactical units assigned to King, with each unit containing about four to five cars and two officers per car. Usually, when
1: King would come to Memphis, well, maybe I'd have maybe 20 men within that
3: block. purpose of these were mostly for riot and crowd control, and they were each given specific instructions to stay within a five-mile radius of the Lorraine Motel. But on the morning of the assassination, four of these tactical units were pulled back outside of that five-block radius, which is a major security flaw that ended up being likely how whoever the shooter was got away in the first place. He actually interviewed Sam Evans for one of his first books, where Evans not only admitted to being responsible for pulling back the police units, but he also said that he only did this at the request of someone from Dr. King's party who had called and requested that they remove the security detail from the Lorraine Motel. And if true, this never actually made sense to Melanson because less than a week prior to Dr. King being assassinated, he had led a march in Memphis that had turned into a violent riot. For
2: someone in the SCLC to have instructed quote unquote the Memphis police to move back those tactical units would be laughable in that situation. And it's absurd to think that the Memphis Police Department would have acceded to that request. These tactical units were riot control Forces that were there to keep the lid on the Lorraine and
3: monitor King. So if someone from Dr. King's party was requesting less security, the police likely would have increased their presence rather than blindly followed the request.
2: Wasn't there some suggestion that they were pulled back at the request of uh, one of Dr. King's party, that they were pulled back for a number of blocks? No, uh, uh, to my knowledge
1: now, and all
2: the only way they'd been pulled back was on my... I questioned Sam Evans about the withdrawal of the tactical units because this was a very important matter. Evans told me clearly and forcefully that the tactical units were withdrawn at the request of the Reverend Samuel Kyles, a man in in King's entourage, and that he, Evans, had received the order, the request from Mr. Kyles, and had acceded to it. And he told me that uh, flatly two years ago.
3: Now, this revelation is very intriguing because not only was Reverend Billy Kyles not associated with Dr. King's organization, the SCLC, but rather he was simply a local pastor whose house was ironically the place that everybody was going to for dinner that night before the rally. First of all, I said, guys, we have a rally tonight. Let's go. It's five o'clock. He said, oh, no, dinner's not till six, and I am in no hurry. Have a seat. The weird part is Reverend Kyles always claimed that in the final hour of Dr. King's life, he had spent it with Dr. King in room 306, hanging out with the guys. That gave me the wonderful privilege to spend the last hour of his life on earth three preachers in a room, Abernathy, King, and Kiles. And of that three, I am the only one left. But years later, it was actually revealed that he never was in room 306 to begin with. In fact, what actually happened is he was hanging out in room 312, just a few rooms over with a few members of the invaders. And it wasn't until around 5.50 p.m. that Dr. Kyles came out of room 312 and knocked on room 306 to inform Dr. King and the other people who were actually in the room that they were running late. What's even more interesting is when Dr. King finally emerged from the room, it said that Reverend Kyles walked 60 feet down to the end of the balcony and stood there waiting an odd and potentially dark connection pointing to a larger conspiracy
1: about a quarter of six we walked on the balcony and he was talking to people in the courtyard he stood here and i stood there only as i moved away so we could have a clear shot the shot rang out
3: And that's not all. The call to pull back the police units was not the only weird call placed on that trip to Memphis. The owner of the Lorraine Motel, Lori Bailey, had also received a mysterious call on the night before Dr. King arrived in town. The person who called also claimed to be part of Dr. King's organization, and they were at the last second requesting that Dr. King be moved to room 306 specifically, which was a weird request to begin with because she had originally reserved room 201 because she felt it provided better security since it was on the first floor facing the inner court. And the next day when Dr. King was shot, Mrs. Bailey became so distraught that she passed out from a sudden brain aneurysm that she would never wake up from. Her last words, what have I done? And because of her passing, the true identity of whoever it was that called remained a mystery. And to make matters even more mysterious, this wasn't Dr. King's first trip to Memphis. In fact, it was his third. And on the previous two trips, he always had an all-black security detail that would escort him everywhere he went. They would walk him upstairs, they would Stand outside of his room at guard, and they specifically said that he should not be staying at the Lorraine Motel because of certain security risks. But regardless, on this trip, that all black security detail wasn't even contacted. Detective Ed Reddit, who was normally part of the security detail, found it weird that they were never even contacted for this trip. So he decided that he was at least going to keep an eye on Dr. King from a distance. That's when he and his partner, a white police officer, both set up shop in the fire station across the street where they could have a perfect view of Dr. King's room
1: all of the courtyard, all the way down the corner of the building. You can see everything around Lorraine.
3: The then, about two hours before the fatal shot was fired, Detective Reddit was ordered by Police Chief Frank Holloman himself to come back to the police station because he had something very urgent to tell him.
1: the Arkin arrived and stated that I was at the headquarters. I said, for what? He said, I don't know, let's get in the car, let's go.
3: I was to bring you back. When he arrived back at the police headquarters, he was greeted by police chief Frank Holloman, as well as two Secret Service agents who had specifically flown in from Washington, D.C. to inform Detective Reddit that there had been a contract taken out on his life. Therefore, he needed to go home and be with his family. Director
1: Frank Holloman stated that the man standing across from me was a Secret Service from Washington stating that there was a contract out on my life. At that time,
3: he told an to take me home and wait until someone arrived to guard me. By the time he got Back, he had seen on the news that Dr. King had been shot. The
2: Reddit affair represents the distraction of the Memphis Police Department by a false intelligence report from Washington that was inputted into the Memphis Police Department within hours before the assassination. And that seemed to have distracted everyone in the department to the extent that they were off on missions and having meetings, and that's very significant.
3: And the crazy part is Reddit wasn't the only black first responder who was called off the scene hours before the shot. The fire station across the street where Ed Reddit was posted up had two black firemen who worked there, Floyd Newsom and Norval Wallace, both of whom were scheduled to be on duty the day that King was shot. However, Floyd Newsom was contacted the night before and told that he needed to stay home because there was a contract taken out on his life. Sounds familiar. And Norval Wallace was contacted the night before as well, but he was told that he should report to Fire Station 31 across town because they were apparently short-staffed. Newsom never heard any updates on the contract supposedly taken out on his life. Wallace showed up to Fire Station 31 the next day where he apparently wasn't needed. And Detective Reddit was later told by the FBI that they had made a mistake and the contract was actually taken out on a black officer from Nashville, Tennessee, not him. But here's what's interesting about the FBI. Links between the police and the FBI were unusually strong in Memphis. For instance, before becoming the chief of police in Memphis, Frank Holloman, and worked for seven years as the right-hand man to J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI who openly hated Dr. King. And on more than one occasion, Hoover's been on record publicly bashing King's reputation, saying things like, King is the most dangerous N-word leader in the country. And King is a tomcat with obsessive degenerate sexual urges, disgusting. Now, these words were in reference to the fact that the FBI had been secretly wiretapping every hotel room that Dr. King had stayed at for years. And in the process, they'd apparently recorded Dr. Dr. King doing some pretty promiscuous sexual acts with women who apparently wasn't his wife, something that Hoover openly felt wasn't very preacher-like of Dr. King. That's why, on one instance, the FBI actually tried to blackmail Dr. King by sending a copy of some of these recordings as well as a letter to his house, and the letter read, Listen to yourself, you filthy, abnormal animal. You are on record, all your adulterous acts. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation king's wife coretta king always said that she knew it wasn't dr king on the recording because in her words i know what my husband sounds like and that ain't it so if you wanted proof that the fbi openly despised king here's a letter literally telling dr king to off himself
1: during the course of our investigation we revealed the fact that the mission of the fbi was to destroy dr king that is all documented in the course of our reports and we did criticize him severely for the illegal, unconstitutional way in which his civil rights were violated.
3: In fact, in 1978, 10 years after the assassination, Congress formed a group called the HSCA, which stood for the House Select Committee of Assassinations, whose only goal was to investigate the deaths of both JFK and MLK. And despite so many unanswered questions, by the end of it, they concluded that James Earl Ray was guilty and likely acted alone. But this conclusion never set right with many of the witnesses. For instance, Detective Ray Reddit, before he was set to testify, was grilled for eight hours straight behind closed doors. And after a full day of hostile questioning, he was starting to get the vibe that they wanted him to change his side of the story altogether. So at the end of it, he told them, I came here as a friend of the investigation, not as an enemy of the investigation. You don't wanna deal with the truth. And that night, Reddit received a phone call from one of his friends in Washington, DC, who told him, man, your life isn't worth a wooden nickel. The following day, Reddit would give his public testimony that he later said was a complete setup. According to Reddit, before the hearing, we looked through a book to look at the questions and answers. So in essence, what they were saying was, this is what you're going to answer to and this is how you're going to answer. It was all made up, all designed, questions and answers, what to say and what not to say. A total farce. Another witness for the HSCA was William Sullivan, the FBI's assistant director of intelligence. Days before he was set to testify against J. Edgar Hoover, he was shot and killed in the woods near his house in what authorities called a hunting accident. And a 20 year member of Congress, Walter Fontroy, who was on the subcommittee of the HSCA, when he started looking into the FBI's direction, he subsequently found an electronic bug in his TV and telephone. Fontroy later testified about this, saying, it was apparent that we were dealing with very sophisticated forces. And despite the findings from the HSCA that there was no government conspiracy to kill Dr. King, James Earl Ray, like before, still claimed his innocence.
2: When you look at a murder, you look at three things. Who had
3: the motive, the means, and
2: the opportunity? I, I'm not now satisfied that James Earl Ray had a sufficient motive, that he had
3: the means and certainly the opportunity to pull it off as it was done. And one of the key people who actually believed Ray was Ralph Abernathy, a close friend of Dr. King's who also happened to be standing right next to him when the shot was fired. So in August 1978, 10 years after the assassination, Abernathy called the one man he felt would definitely be able to get to the bottom of the truth, William Pepper. Now, in 1978, Pepper was a lawyer based out of New York City who also happened to become very close to Dr. King in the year before he died. And despite Pepper's close relationship with King, he himself had never really looked into the case because he'd always assumed that James Earl Ray did it. So you could probably understand his confusion when Ralph Abernathy was calling him and asking him to come visit with James Earl Ray. But Pepper trusted Abernathy's instincts, so he agreed to take the meeting. In the room was Ralph Abernathy, William Pepper, a body language expert, and two photographers, where they asked James Earl Ray pretty much every question they could think of for five hours straight. And much to their surprise, they found Ray's story believable. According to Abernathy, James O'Ray's answers to my questions convinced me more than ever that it was a conspiracy that took the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and that James Earl Ray should get a new trial. We came away
4: from that five hour session with a distinct belief that this man was not the shooter. We didn't know what other role he might have played in the killing and we didn't know whether he was used as a patsy or whether he was a willing
3: conspirator. But we had the feeling distinctly he was not the shooter. And even more surprising, William Pepper found James Ray to be the exact opposite of what the media had always portrayed him to be. He was very different from the man we had read about and we had heard about. He was
4: not uh, aggressive. He was not brutish. He didn't appear to have any traces of
3: overt racism. In fact, he was docile. He was quiet, even shy. But before Pepper would agree to represent James Earl Ray, he first wanted to make sure that not only did James Earl Ray not fire the shot, but that he also didn't knowingly play a role in Dr. King's death. But he raised
4: so many questions in my mind about the official story and his own guilty plea scenario that I decided I would start to look into this.
3: So that's why Pepper would spend the next few years traveling between Memphis, Tennessee, and visiting James Earl Ray in prison, because he was looking into basically every lead from Ray's side of the story. And it became a slippery slope because the deeper
4: I got into it, the more questions I found and I couldn't answer, so I kept going and going.
3: And that's when Pepper met a man named John McFerrin. McFerrin owned a local grocery store just outside of Memphis, and as part of his Thursday routine, every Thursday at 5.15 on the dot, he would go to a place called L&L Produce, owned by local mobster Frank Liberto. And on the afternoon of April 4th, 1968, when John McFerrin arrived to L&L Produce, he had heard a conversation that would break this case wide open.
1: Would you describe what you did when you arrived at Learners. Coming in from the north side, there's a little
2: small office. And when I got in 10 to 15 feet of this office, when the phone rang, Lash picked it up. Lash said, that's him again. He gave it to Mr. Baito. And Mr. Baito said, shoot it.
1: Uh, you can just say what he said. Shoot the son on the back
3: then, when Liberto hung up the phone, he noticed that McFerrin was standing there and he told him to just go on and get his stuff. Then, when I was coming back out, the phone rang again. it up and
2: give it to Mr. White. And Mr. White told him, go to his brother and do over and get his $5,000.
3: One hour later, when John McFerrin arrived home, his wife had told him the tragic news that Dr. King had been shot and killed. And when the HSCA did their own investigation in 1978, McFerrin's statements were written off as not credible, and he was never taken seriously.
4: I've known John for 10 years. I believe John had a crucial bit of
3: information that was
4: never looked at properly, never followed up, and disregarded. And the only reason it would have been disregarded was because it was inconvenient to the scenario that became, in effect, the official story.
3: Now, to understand who Frank Liberto is, I've got to introduce you to two more witnesses, Levada Addison and her son, James Nathan Whitlock. Because by the time William Pepper had come into the picture, Frank Liberto had already passed away. So Lavada and her son were the last two known people who were relatively close to him. You see, Lavada ran a pizza parlor that Liberto would stop into pretty much every day because it was right between his home and his produce store. But one time while Lavada was serving him, he had said something about Martin Luther King that she never forgot. According to Lavada Addison, I had a TV up in the front part of the pizza parlor and we were sitting at a table. And something came on the TV about Martin Luther King. And I don't recall what it was, but he said in a low voice to me, I had Martin Luther King killed. I said, don't be telling me anything like that. I don't wanna hear it and I don't believe it anyways. And I got up and walked away. This was the last time that he would mention anything about Martin Luther King to Levada Addison. Now, James Whitlock, her son, also worked in the pizza parlor and he had developed somewhat of a friendship with Liberto since he was such a regular. And in his conversations with Liberto, James, as a kid, decided he would ask Frank about some of the rumors he had heard about. about Frank Bing in the mafia. To which Liberto never really gave a straight answer other than saying that when he was a kid growing up in New Orleans, he pushed a vegetable cart for a guy named Carlo Marcello. Now, if you don't know who Carlo Marcello is, he's an infamous mafia boss based out of New Orleans who many have theorized played a role in JFK's assassination back in 1963. And if you remember that John McFarren had heard Liberto say to the person on the phone, you should go pick up your money from my brother in New Orleans. Well, it would later be found That the brother Liberto was referring to was most likely Carlo Marcello himself. Who was my brother in new orleans The uh, chief aide to Carlos Marcello, the The mob chief. Without question. But since Whitlock was a kid at the time, this obviously wasn't a connection he made. I asked
2: you some stuff that led
1: up to him telling me that he He came from New Orleans, but I heard that he was in the mafia,
0: and I asked him if he was in the mafia, and he, he didn't say yes or no, he answered me, but I asked him, I said, what yeah. is the mafia? Is it a bunch of bad guys that sit around a table and scheme up
3: something mean to do? It's, no, it's a bunch of businessmen that take care of business. Regardless of how those conversations always went, when Whitlock heard what Liberto had said to his mother about Martin Luther King, he got mad, because if he was actually in the mafia, then that type of knowledge could put his own mother at risk.
0: He said he said why don't you kill one of those kings he glared at
1: me he said you can talk to your mother okay? I said yeah he said you wired I didn't know what he meant by that I'm like, no I'm not wired I thought he was talking about if I'm taking amphetamine pills and wired up and I said, no I'm not
0: crazy uh, and, uh, I don't want to offend anybody by saying what did just say you. he told me he said I didn't kill them, but I had it done
3: surprised and not knowing what to make of what he just heard James then asked about the guy who was taking credit for it
0: I said well, what about Son that they're taking credit for. He says, Ah, he wasn't nothing but a troublemaker from Missouri. He was a front man. And I didn't know what that meant. because front man <laughs> to me means something different than what he was thinking about. I said, a What? He said, A setup I said, well, why'd you kill the preacher for he says boy you don't even need to be here about this don't you
3: say nothing. now if you've been paying attention by this point we have strong evidence suggesting that not only did James Earl Ray not kill Dr King but whoever did somehow likely had help from people within the Memphis Police Department the FBI and also the Mafia which by definition would make this a legitimate conspiracy if proven to be true so in 1988 William Pepper finally agreed to officially become James Earl Ray's lawyer because he had seen enough to believe believe that James was not guilty. I had to be convinced
4: that he not only wasn't the shooter but that he had no knowing role. And it took
3: me 10 years to be convinced of that. So in
4: 1988, I agreed to represent him and I started to handle his applications on appeal for a new trial.
3: But since it had now been 20 plus years since Ray went to prison, no judge wanted to touch the case. That's why in 1993, after constantly failing to get the case reopened, William Pepper decided that he was gonna take matters into his own hands. So he hit up one of his friends, Jack Saltman, who was a TV producer, to help arrange a live, unscripted mock trial that would be nationally televised on HBO. We decided,
0: what
4: well, we thought was a brilliant idea, to have a trial for James Earl Ray on television. And
3: it was telecast
4: on HBO
3: in the United States in 1993. The trial would involve a real judge, and an impartial jury of 12 members, a prosecution team, and the defense of James Earl Ray being led by William Pepper.
4: Now that trial took place over 10 days. We tried that case with a fraction of the evidence that was later to emerge. Tennessee criminal procedure rules applied. There were no scripts, it was a bitterly fought trial. The judge and I fought continually
3: in chambers about evidence. They called dozens of actual witnesses to the stand and cross-examined them for all the cameras and the audience members to see. And after it was all said and done, when the jury went away, it only took them seven hours to come back with their official decision, where they ultimately found James O'Reilly not guilty. Probably never heard about that because it was never reported, it was
4: never covered. The media never treated it in any way at all a news story it
3: was regarded as entertainment and even then it was not
4: it was not covered
3: so despite the win James Earl Ray still had to serve his 99 year sentence the only thing we got from it was no further forward
4: in terms of getting
3: James out of prison but new evidence new witnesses started to come forward And one of these witnesses was Betty Space. In 1968, Betty Space was a 17-year-old black girl who worked full-time at Jim's Grill. Additionally, at only 17 years old, she was also having an affair with the owner of Jim's Grill, Lloyd Jowers, who we had actually met earlier when he kicked Charlie Stevens out of his restaurant for being too drunk on that afternoon. Some of the most significant evidence was against a guy called
4: Lloyd Jowers. Now, Lloyd owned Jim's Grill, and Jim's Grill backed onto the Lorraine Motel, and it was the cafe on the ground floor of the rooming house, which James O'Reilly rented a room on the instructions of Raúl,
3: On the afternoon of April 4th, 1968, Betty claims that when she showed up for her shift around 6pm, she noticed that the door to the kitchen was closed, which was not usual. So she went into the kitchen where she noticed that the back door that led to the bushes behind Jim's grill was wide open, something that was also unusual. Betty thought the worst. She assumed that Lloyd probably was out there with another woman, so she went towards the door to see who was back there, and at that moment she heard what sounded like a loud firecracker. Seconds later, Lloyd came running through that back door and into the kitchen, looking white as a sheet and carrying a smoking rifle.
1: He looked like he had stuck his brain in his socket. Lloyd's hair was standing up and he looked like somebody had drained all the blood out of his body. He was so
0: white. Oh, he was so white. He had been
1: on his knees. How do you know he'd been on his I, knees? I know he had been on his knees because the
2: ground was damp.
1: Because what? The ground was damp and his knees was dirty. And when he came in there and went behind the counter and put the gun on the counter, it was a brand new pretty right
3: there. And when Jowers saw Spates, he looked at her and said, you wouldn't say anything to hurt me, would you? She of course told him no, and she would keep this promise for over 25 years until she saw the HBO trial of James Earl Ray.
4: Jowers was in the frame right from the beginning because he was the one who ran Jim's Grill. He owned it and he ran it. And he clearly had some role to play, which eventually started to become defined by Betty spades
3: also inspired by the hBO trial another witness would come forward with information implicating jower's involvement in the crime and it came from the cab driver James McGraw who if you remember was ironically another one of the witnesses who confirmed that Charlie Stevens was too drunk that day to have been a reliable witness to anything after seeing the hBO trial he finally revealed the secret that he had been keeping for over 25 years and that's what happened to him the day after King was shot you see McGraw himself was a regular at jim's grill he would stop in there every day between cab rounds. And on the day after the shooting, McGraw went into the diner like he normally did around noon. And this time, Lloyd Jowers wanted to show him something. So he pulled up a box from behind the counter and in the box was a 30 caliber rifle with a scope that Jowers claimed he had broken down himself the night before. Now, it's unclear all the information that may have been revealed to McGraw in this conversation, but McGraw claims that Jowers told him that he was gonna hand it over to the police later that evening. And that was the last that they spoke about it. So the question now becomes, could Lloyd Jowers really have had anything to do with the death of Dr. King? And if so, did he fire the shot? Luckily for William Pepper and James Earl Ray, Jowers was still alive at this time. And with the knowledge that there were now multiple witnesses connecting Jowers to the crime, Jowers did something that nobody would have expected.
4: Lloyd Jowers, a 67-year-old Memphis businessman once wants his face partially shadowed because he says he fears for his safety, insists he has a shocking story to tell.
3: He, along with his attorney, Lewis Garrison, approached the attorney general and asked for full immunity in exchange for anything he knew about the conspiracy to kill Dr. King, a deal that he was not given.
1: What am I supposed to do? The guy who says that he is guilty of a capital crime, I'm supposed to give him immunity? I mean,
3: that's ludicrous. So in an effort to force the attorney general's hand at immunity, Jowers agreed to do an interview with ABC journalist Sam Donaldson where he discussed his involvement in the killing of Dr. King. This interview aired on Prime Time Live on December 16, 1993.
4: We begin tonight with a startling story which says there was a conspiracy to kill Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You will hear from two men who claim to have direct knowledge of the facts, including one who says he was the man asked to arrange Dr. King's murder. The
3: interview opens with Donaldson asking Jowers. Mr. Jowers, did
4: James Earl Ray kill Dr. Martin Luther King? No,
1: he did not. Do you know who killed Dr. King? I know who was paid
3: to do it. Now, over the course of the interview, Jowers would go on to explain that he was only indirectly involved in the killing of Dr. King, saying that a man named Frank Liberto, who he owed a large favor to, had come to him and asked if he could hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King.
1: Liberto done myself a large favor, so I owed him a favor or at least I thought I did. Did there come a time when he came and asked you to repay that favor? Yes, sir. What did Frank Liberto ask you to do? He asked me to hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King.
3: But when Donaldson asked the question of the day, Mr. Jowers, did you find someone to do the killing? Without hesitation, Jowers said yes, but before he could utter another word, Lewis Garrison cut him off and said, I cannot permit him to answer that question.
4: Roll the clip. Did you find someone to do the killing? Yes, well, He cannot answer that. I'm I'm not going to permit him to answer that question. He's gone
3: as far as we can. So it seemed that they had reached the limit of what Jowers was willing to reveal until he was granted immunity. I just felt like the people should know what really happened. And if
1: we get immunity, they will know. Believe me, they will. If we don't, they may never know.
3: So you're telling me that you do not think you're going to grant him immunity? I know I'm not. I'm not going to request it. But here's where it gets crazy. The day after ABC ran the story, nobody else in the media touched it. And unless you were watching the broadcast, you probably didn't even hear about it. But one person who did see this primetime interview and was very intrigued by it was Dexter King, Martin Luther King's youngest son. You see, Dexter, he had always had his doubts about James Earl Ray being the shooter. So when he saw this man, Lloyd Jowers, confessing to the existence of a conspiracy to kill his father, he obviously. Had some questions, so he arranged for a meeting between himself, Lloyd Jowers, Lewis Garrison, and Andrew Young, a friend of Dr. King's who was there when King was shot.
4: Ambassador Young, as a result of the family's awareness and concern, were you asked to participate in a meeting with an
1: individual, Mr. Lloyd Jowers? Yes, I was.
3: And in this conversation, Jowers started to fill in the blanks of what happened that day. First, he clarified his arrangement with Liberto, saying that he had owed a large gambling debt, and Frank Liberto offered to pay for it, as well as pay him additional money on top of that, in exchange for one, allowing them to use Jim's grill to plan the assassination of Dr. King, and two, on April 4th, 1968, he needed a promise that he'd be standing at the back door to receive a package from someone at exactly 6 p.m. And according to Jowers, when he was asked at the back door, exactly at the time he was told, Officer Earl Clark, a known sharpshooter for the Memphis Police Department, came right up to him and handed him a smoking rifle before quickly running away. And here's how the conversation panned out from there. Andrew Young, you're pretty sure that you were standing at the back door and Clark gave you a smoking rifle? Jowers. I'm sure it was Clark. Young. And then you put it under the counter? Jowers. I broke it down into two pieces, wrapped it in a tablecloth, put it up under the counter, and put some more towels on top of it. That's where it stayed until the next day. And when asked what he did with the rifle, Jowers claimed that a man named Raul came and picked it up from him the following day, late in the afternoon. And he knows the guy's name was Raul specifically because at first when Liberto said his name, he confused it for Royal, which Liberto had to correct him and say, no, his name is Raul, Young. And it was Raul that came back and picked it up? Jowers, he didn't do anything with it except left it wrapped up in the tablecloth and he went out the front door with it. Garrison, what did he tell you he came in for that day, Mr. Jowers? Jowers, he come to pick that rifle up. Garrison. Did he tell you he came to pick up the rifle? Jowers. He asked me if I had a package for him. I said, well, sure. I've got it under the counter. I got it last night. He said, that's what I'm asking for. He was real short about it. Like if I wasn't going to give it to him, he'd blow me away. Anyway, I give it to him and that's the last i seen of him. But here's where the interview got really juicy. When Garrison, Jowers' own lawyer, asked him about who was in attendance at the meetings where the assassination was planned. Lewis Garrison to Lloyd Jowers. You told Mr. King before about a meeting that was held in your place where some people identified themselves as police. Jowers to Dexter King. Yeah, do you remember me telling you about these policemen meeting there? Dexter King. I do. Garrison, the CIA and FBI too. Jowers. The CIA and the FBI were there, but they weren't there the same time all those policemen were there. But that wasn't unusual. If a policeman came in, it would be Johnny Barger or Earl Clark or someone like that that would just stop in for a minute. Dexter King. So did you ever overhear anything that they were saying or did you have a sense for what they were meeting about? Jowers. I wouldn't know what the meeting was about. What was the Discussed. I couldn't say. Of course, I would only get a word now and then from going by the table. Garrison, how many times was Merrill McCullough in there before this meeting? Jowers, how many times was he in there? I can't remember. He could have been in there when I wasn't even around. Garrison, but you saw him in there several times? Jowers, I saw him several times. Sure. Garrison, he was introduced to you as a police officer, wasn't he? Jowers, yeah. Now, if you remember from earlier, Meryl McCullough was the first person who reached Dr. King after the shot and was later revealed to be an undercover cop who was later promoted to the CIA. Young, Sam Donaldson was the first one that pointed him out to me. He said he was with the Army Intelligence and he was there to make sure that Dr. King was dead. Jowers, make sure Dr. King was what? Young, was really dead. King, he was checking his pulse when he leaned over. Garrison, I heard he was supposed to give some type of sign if he wasn't. Now, this comment is very interesting considering it's coming from the lawyer representing the guy who's confessing to the conspiracy to kill Dr. King. And then Dexter asked Jowers about James Earl Ray. King, so it is your feeling that James Earl Ray did not? Jowers, no. He didn't know more kill him than you killed your own dad. Nope, i never believe that in a million. Even if he told me I wouldn't believe it. King, so why was he set up? Jowers, his own fault. They got him out of jail. They furnished him money. They furnished him passports. Now they come up with the tale about him setting up a gun deal. They may have told him that, but that wasn't true. King, you said if you thought it would help, you would come forward to the media. Jowers, yeah. King. Don't you think it would cause people to start Jowers? I think it would get me put in jail. I think it would get me indicted. That's exactly what I think. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. And this is where the tape ends, putting a stamp on what appeared to be an open and honest confession from Jowers to Dexter King. Mr.
0: Jowers was getting older. He wasn't very well. And it was almost like he wanted to get right with
3: God before he died. He was a man wanted to confess it and be free of it. But there was one last thing that Dexter wanted to do before the King family would openly support James Earl Ray. Dexter wanted to meet Ray himself, look him in the eye and ask him the question of the day. Did you kill my father? No, no, I didn't, no. To which Dexter replied, I believe you and my
1: family believes you. And we are going to do everything in our power
0: to try and make sure that justice will prevail.
3: And now with over 25 years of evidence, a recorded confession and the public support of the King family, all James Earl Ray needed was one sympathetic judge who was willing to take a look at his case. And they had finally found one. His name, Judge Joe Brown. You've probably heard of him because of his TV show, which ran for 15 seasons. But what most people don't know about Judge Joe Brown is that he only got discovered for the TV show because of the last case he took on in 1998, the case of James Earl Ray.
1: I wound up being the last judge hearing the James Earl Ray matter, did he in fact assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King? You
3: see, in the 90s, Judge Brown happened to be the criminal courts judge in Shelby County, Tennessee, which includes Memphis. And when this case crossed his desk, he noticed one major discrepancy that no judges before him had noticed. The
1: state claimed that it's reasonable factual basis was Ray's rifle, a .30-06 caliber, Remington 760 game master, a pump rifle. The interesting thing is, is that the fbi claimed that they could not make a ballistics match between ray's rifle and the bullet they pulled out of
3: king's body according to the fbi's files they claimed that they did test the gun but the results were inconclusive because the slug found in dr king's body was too distorted to properly test
1: however there's one criteria that up to that point nobody had raised and that was since the fbi could not make a ballistics match there was absolutely nothing in the record that said Ray's rifle was the murder rifle, except the prosecutors for Shelby
3: County. So all they could really conclusively say was that a 30 caliber rifle was found and a 30 caliber bullet had killed King. The fact that the bullet markings are said to have been consistent with having been
1: from the the rifle means absolutely nothing. It was also consistent with several million other
3: rifles of the same kind. So after looking at the obvious lack of ballistics evidence against James Earl Ray, Judge Brown decided that he'd try to get Ray's case reopened. The first step, order the rifle to be retested for ballistics. After hearing testimony, from ballistics experts
4: memphis judge joe brown decided further examination of test fire bullets from james R. ray's
0: rifle may be needed.
3: There was only one problem though. Because it had been over 25 years since the crime, the process for doing so involved a lot of paperwork and stamps of approval from the Court of Criminal Appeals, who ultimately would have the final say on if the rifle could be retested or not. And the process was very, very slow because at first they denied Judge Brown's request.
1: They had a very peculiar thing that they put in their documentation. The state said, if the rifle is tested at this point it may become damaged which would quote prevent it from being retested in the future, unquote. Now that one eludes me, if you don't want to test it tested now, why do you want it tested in the future?
3: But one of the things that Judge Brown could do in the meantime was look at the other evidence, which is exactly what he did when he ordered the bullet found inside Dr. King to be examined under a high-powered electron microscope. And when he did, it was found that based on the grooves,
1: it appears that the death slug that was taken out of King's body was fired from a rifle that had a rate of rifling twist of one turn in every, 11 and a quarter inches. Ray's rifle, for those who are interested, had a rate of rifling twist of one turn in 10 inches. If you've got an 11 and a quarter inch rate of rifling twist, you're talking custom barrel. And James O'Reilly Ray, I assure you had no access to anybody making custom barrels at that time.
3: Additionally, when examining the scope found on Ray's rifle, Judge Brown also found that it had never been sighted. Somebody down here in
1: Memphis decided to test Fire that rifle the day after the King killing, and at 100 yards, it was hitting six feet to the right and four feet low. So the rifle was never sighted in. In other words, it literally wouldn't hit the broadside of a barn, <laughs> let alone
3: somebody's head. So, to Judge Brown, this was more than enough circumstantial evidence to get the case reopened. In a motion to reopen this matter filed by the petitioner with a claim
1: that there is new scientific evidence that may be capable of establishing that the petitioner is actually innocent. That's what we're here for today.
3: But before he could get any conclusive ballistic sessing done, let alone reopen the case, after three years of presiding over Ray's appeal of the guilty plea, the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals removed Judge Brown from the case altogether, claiming that he had become too biased towards Ray.
1: I well, removed me from the case, they said I was biased toward James Earl Ray, which I found rather astonishing. If anybody knows me, me being biased in favor of a self avowed racist and bigot is just absolutely disgusting concept. but what I've always tried to do is be fair and partial and, and detached, straight down the middle and sometimes or another that upsets people when things don't go as they expect them to go. So you were removed from the case by Hope. Tennessee
3: Court of Criminal Appeals. So unfortunately for Ray, it seemed that the one judge who would have been willing to help him was no longer able to. And not to mention, by this point in time, Ray's health was rapidly declining. As an old man, he had contracted liver disease and was subsequently turned down for a liver transplant that William Pepper had arranged for him to get.
2: Prison doctors have said
3: without a liver transplant, Ray has only months to live. That continues to heighten the King family's concern. Ray may never tell his version of the truth,
4: in court. I put in an application to the court to allow him to be transported to the University of Pittsburgh where the operation would take place. He qualified. He met all of their criteria. Uh, We offered to pay all the expenses, of course, and
3: he was denied the liver transplant that he needed to live. Then in 1998, James Earl Ray passed away while serving his 99-year sentence. It was a sad day, not just because Ray died in prison as they were convinced an innocent man, but it also meant that their family would most likely never get the closure they wanted of a full legally sanctioned trial for who actually killed Dr. King. And
0: it has always been a feeling that there are many unanswered questions that have not
3: been addressed.
0: So for many years we avoided this issue,
3: I guess you could kind of say we've been in denial. And that's when William Pepper got a bright idea, an idea that was so crazy, it just might work. You see, Pepper had realized that they didn't need James Earl Ray's presence to have the trial at all. As it stood, they had a recorded confession from a guy claiming to be involved in the conspiracy to kill King. So his idea was to sue Lloyd Jowers and other unnamed co-conspirators from the government for the wrongful death of Dr. King.
2: (laughs) believe that the FBI had uh, something to do with that conspiracy. It seems to me that the surveillance that my husband underwent as he traveled around the world by the FBI and the things that have already been revealed that are on record point toward the FBI having certainly known what was happening.
3: The only downside was that if they decided to go through with this idea, it would have to be done in civil court and not criminal court. And not to mention, it would likely come with a lot of media scrutiny bashing in the King family.
1: For Mr. King to be misled into believing in mafia conspiracies uh, is so unfortunately ignorant of the real history. Dexter,
0: I, I met Mr. Ray. He is not a segregationist. I've met segregationists. This man was not born in the South as the media portrayed at the time. The fact of the matter is he was born in Illinois. I met his family. They are not people who strike me as racist. The fact of the
3: matter is this man was set up. So in 1999, one year after James Earl Ray passed away and 41 years after the death of Dr. King, the King family being represented by William Pepper, the former lawyer of James Earl Ray, went to trial against Lloyd Jowers. A
2: trial for Mr. Ray is our last hope to reveal the truth about my husband's assassination and bring about at least some sense of closure to the pain we have endured as family over unanswered surrounding this tragedy.
3: The trial lasted 30 days, and over 70 witnesses were called to the stand. People like Art Haynes, Earl Caldwell, Solomon Jones, Ed Reddit, Floyd Newsom, James McGraw, Betty Spates, Judge Brown, and many more.
4: We clearly laid out all of the evidence we had at that point in time that had never been made available to the criminal court or an evidentiary
3: hearing. And by the time it was all said and done, the jury only took 59 minutes to make their final decision. When they returned, the courtroom was crowded with spectators, almost all black. And Judge James Swearingen read the verdict aloud. In answer to the question, did Lloyd Jowers participate in a conspiracy to do harm to Dr. Martin Luther King? Your answer is yes. Do you also find that others, including governmental agencies, were parties to this conspiracy as alleged by the defendant? Your answer to that one is also yes. Victory. The King family ultimately would sue Lloyd Jowers for a grand total of just $100. Because as Coretta Scott King explained to the courtroom, this is not about money. We want the truth documented in a court of law. My family of I have wanted to see and know the truth and to heal the nation. Now, while the result of the civil trial finally offered some much needed closure, it still left a few unanswered questions. Like who actually fired the shot and exactly how high up in the government did this conspiracy go? And depending on who you ask, you'll have people who adamantly claim very different Conclusions. For example, William Pepper is convinced the shot was fired from the bushes behind Jim's grill.
4: Martin was killed by a civilian firing from the bushes who was a sharpshooter, Memphis police officer was paid a sum of money to do it. He was the mechanic. That's all he was.
3: But if you ask Judge Brown, he's certain that the shot came from a two-man sniper team who were concealed in the fire station. The shot
1: came from the dormitory in the fire station through a window that had been slightly parted. They were several feet inside. It was a two-man team,
3: a spotter, and a shooter. So it seems that, unfortunately, the mystery of the shooter may likely never be solved. But there's one thing for certain. When looking into the evidence in the eyewitness testimony, there is no chance that James O'Reilly fired that shot. And an impartial jury in a real court of law agreed to that conclusion. In the three years that I've been looking into this case on and off, there are two important notes that I wanna make. One, James O'Reilly is no hero. While I'm fully convinced that he wasn't guilty, I do feel it's important to remember that he was a lifelong petty criminal who was serving a 20-year sentence for armed robbery. That's arguably why he was even in this position in the first place. And while it's tragic that he spent his entire life in prison for a crime he didn't commit, I'm not convinced he wouldn't have ended up in a jail cell regardless. And two, I can honestly say that I'm grateful for the courageous people who fought for this truth to be made public information over the last 55 years. The fact that much of this information is already out there is honestly the one thing that makes me feel safe even putting this video together. Disclaimer, yes, this information is public and this video has been created for entertainment purposes only, and I'm also a strong swimmer and I love my life. And by the way, if you do wanna go deeper down this rabbit hole, I can't recommend the podcast called The MLK Tapes by Bill Kleber enough, along with the book, The 13th Juror, which contains the full transcript of the entire civil trial from start to finish. Both of those resources have been instrumental in my research of this case. So I'll put the links to both of those below this video if you're interested in checking those out. And the last thing I'll say is that in the writing of this video, I really tried my best to not inject too many of my own personal opinions into the case, but to rather put the facts of the case in front of you so that way you can draw your own conclusions. Personally, I just think it's tragic that the wrong information of what happened to Dr. King is still taught in schools to this day. And in the words of David Morphy, the only jury member who was willing to make a statement after the civil trial, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence and just too many odd coincidences. Everything from the police department being pulled back to the death threat on Reddit, to the two black firefighters being pulled off. Even them going back to that point and cutting down the trees. Who in their right mind would go and destroy a crime scene like that the morning after? It was just very, very odd. And if you think this case was odd, just wait until you see this video right here about the hidden room under the Sphinx that could rewrite history.